0: I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself And there's some stories I
1: can tell you This is the Final Word Cricket podcast with me, Adam Collins, and him, Jeff Lemon, down the Zoom screen in Melbourne. I'm in Dubai for the Fairbreak Invitational, which begins in a couple of days. We'll tell you a little bit about that in a moment. Uh, We have a quite important interview coming up later in the show with Patrick Foster and Will McPherson discussing their new book about uh, compulsive gambling uh, and all that can come from that. And we have plenty more to discuss uh, in the cricket world. Hello, Jeff.
2: Good day to you uh, at whatever time it is that people are listening in. Uh, We're always told on the OBO, don't say good morning, don't say good evening. People are all around the world, Uh, even more so in podcast times. You might be listening to this in 17 years from now. I don't know. I don't know. If you are,
1: hello. This could be listened to by Winnie one day, my daughter. I might go back and listen to our entire back catalogue to get a sense of what her her dad was like at age whatever we are Mm -hmm. um, from the start. I guess we were in our early 30s when we started this and wanting to to feel that and sense that. And if she is listening right now, I love you very much. You're sleeping in the next room of our hotel room uh, and uh, you've not made a peep yet. And hopefully you won't make a peep through the course of this recording. She
2: would need to take a full gap year if she wanted to listen to every episode of this show, like back to back to back. It's um, going to take a while.
1: I've learnt that in my study for this Fairbreak Invitational tournament that I mentioned before that I'm here for and begins on Wednesday that there's a Winifred playing uh, in it Mm -hmm. and Winifred is from Malaysia uh, and I assume she'd be the first Winifred to play international cricket. I was wrong. There was a Winifred that played one test match for England against Australia back in 1951 Mm -hmm. so my Winnie will be the third of course when she makes her bow as a a top flight cricketer (laughs) in about... 18 years from now or something like that, or so I've been telling people.
2: Well, I'm surprised there was only one, actually. I, I would have thought that. That era from the 30s through to the 60s would be big Winifred areas. You know, there were there were apples yeah. getting around, there were Enids getting around. <laughs> I'm sure there were Winifreds as well, um, as as the the yeah. circle of of naming goes. Uh, every time you mention the tournament that you're at, I in my head it changes it to the point break tournament, which <laughs> which seems like <laughs> death on a stick out there, mate. Um, which which I, I I look I look forward to. Attending the Point Break tournament at some time. I don't know what. I suppose it'll be a surfing competition, but um, it's going to have yeah. to involve Keanu in some way.
1: Well, I suspect it'll be the first of many. Maybe they can get Keanu over to Hong Kong where it'll be mm-hmm. held next time. This is in conjunction with Hong Kong cricket and Fair Break. That's like a, a movement. I first met Sean Martin who runs Fair Break in. I think it was 2015 with Lisa Stelaker, who was running it with him at the time. It was. Uh, I think that was at the time it was the women, the women's international cricket league or something like that, and they had never been able to quite get that off the ground. The Women's Big Bash League came along and then the Keir Super League and other domestic competitions. But the origin story goes all the way back to, I suppose, 10 years ago when there was this sense that women were being left out of the T20 revolution and they needed to have someone to come in and, and fill the, the market gap and Sean and his team have been part of that conversation and yeah, this is a, an ICC-sanctioned competition this week. It's in conjunction with Hong Kong cricket. Uh, there are 40 players from full member nations and 50 from associate nations. So there are 36 countries represented across the six teams. It's pretty cool. I've met a number of players from around the world at the at the official function last night. I had a drink with Roberto Moretti last night, Jeff. which Beautiful. was fun and her, uh, her young teammate Laura who's with her who took the five wickets in five balls uh, oh, yes. against Canada last year to, to win that game so they're both here representing Brazil but yeah countries like Bhutan and Germany and mm-hmm. the Netherlands and well, I suppose you'd expect the Netherlands to have players here given uh, their footprint in women's cricket but because it's near Germany, that came to mind. Japan, plenty of Hong Kong players. UAE, we're in Dubai. I think there are about half a dozen players from the UAE team. Argentina, I met uh, Martina last night, who's the captain of Argentina. Muy bien. Exactly. Uh, Yeah, and she's determined to be a professional cricketer. And like for for players who have got other jobs, and that's what it was with women's cricket for so long, the chance to earn really good money for a fortnight, it might be life-changing. Uh, so yeah I can't wait to get stuck in tomorrow Uh, we've had a fair bit of time here actually we've we've been here since Friday so we've learnt the rhythm of the hotel we're in so much so Jeff and you'll appreciate this as a man who stayed in in many hostels and has had many free breakfasts at hotels over the journey as well. And indeed, I've, I've watched you do this where you pack for lunch during breakfast. Mm-hmm. Well, we're not doing that for Rachel and me. We're civilised. Winnie, on the other hand, we're getting out all the watermelon we can get, shoving it in Rachel's bag and that sorts her out <laughs> for lunch. So uh, it's like I've gone back to my backpacker days around Europe in sort of 2005 or whatever it was. So yeah, it's pretty cool. There's a player from Austria called Andrea May I met the other day. I, I note the the name because Winnie May, Andrea May. Uh, she's a doctor who's taken two weeks off work to play in this competition, and she mm. was the associate player of the year last year. So yeah, there, there are there are great stories everywhere. And what I'll try and do while we're here, Jeff, is uh, interview a few of the players and, and pop them on the final web in the weeks and months to come.
2: Please do. We should get Roberta to you know co-host an episode or something while you're there. You should. Uh, She'd be very happy to do so.
1: She, You should see I mean, you can imagine what she's like in real life, a huge personality, but going up to all these sort of established stars and getting photographs with them. And I mean, she was starstruck and I, I had to remind her, Roberta, you're a star in your own right. Given your YouTube channel and your online presence, people know you already. It's not as though uh, you need to go up and introduce yourself. Like you are a well-known presence across the women's cricket world and far broader than that as well.
2: The doctor thing is good because if, if she gets clocked in the grill, then she'll be able to give herself a concussion check and, and <laughs> decide whether she's right to carry on, so that's handy. Um, I should also clarify that the five in five, one of them was a run out, so it was a hat trick, then the run yes. out, then, then the fifth wicket, so it wasn't five that's in a right. row, which, which of course our listeners know would be a triple hat trick. Yes.
1: There there was a double hat-trick taken last year for Germany oh. and you'll have to forgive me for not remembering the names the player of the name I'll have it in front of me on notes for commentary but I can't I don't have that kind of recall for players I've I've only kind of just become familiar with at this stage but a triple hat-trick last year and I think she's the same player who is speaking of uh Doctors. She, she is a cardiovascular expert. I mean, mm-hmm. the incredible backstories we're talking over here. But, yeah, we, we have got a double hat trick in our ranks at Fairbreak this week. So hopefully we'll have some viral moments like, you know, Roberta playing a switch hit or something like that. Mm. That'll work just nicely.
2: Well, uh, good luck with it. You know, I hope you enjoy being back at Dubai Sports City. Keep your eyes open for a bargain, oh, yeah. of course.
1: Yeah, I, I did. I, I sent you a photo, didn't I, of our commentary box from 2018. I had a bit of a... Uh, a, a bit of a moment. They're standing out on the field. And Jeff, you'll remember a couple of phone calls I took the day before that first test where there were some grumpy people down the end of the phone who. Basically didn't trust that we were going to be all right on the night. One client in particular who was blaming us for the broadcast, not getting to them, and in practice it was a problem at their end and, you know, kind of being told that we'll pull the money and me thinking to myself, like I'm mean, i in all sorts here. If this doesn't go ahead or something goes wrong. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, you got back upstairs and Dono sorted it out and, and we got to the line and thus started one of the more interesting chapters of our professional lives, Jeff. But, yes, back in Dubai in... Very different circumstances to, uh, to what we were in uh, yeah, back in 2018.
2: Very good. Uh, I hope you enjoy it. It's also yeah. oh, not much more than a month away from uh, going to Sri Lanka, which, mm. which is coming up, and they've named the squads. All of the squads. There are about 15 squads. There are about... 150 players going across to Sri Lanka to do some bits and pieces. Uh, The T20 squad, the ODI squad, the Test squad and the Australia A squad. Uh, Some crossover, but uh, plenty of uh, tickets being bought.
1: Yeah, you know what? I think this is reflective of almost what it'll feel like in the post-COVID world. I mean, they've, they've been conditioned to taking these big squads overseas. What they're doing here is taking one giant squad and providing them the flexibility to jump from one to the next. And I think that's just like, you step back from it, why weren't they doing this all along? Why were we being so regimented in who was a Test player and who mm. was a T20 player? When you are going to the same country, just muck in a little bit. So the example of this is Glenn Maxwell. He's not in theory in the Test squad, but it had been reported uh, by Dan Bredig during the week that he'd be given a chance to resume his Test career, which he hasn't played for five years, if he does well in the in the one day as he hasn't played any first class cricket for, for two years or whatever it is now but mm. doesn't that make sense if Maxi blows the doors down in, in the one day internationals of course they're going to pick him the third spinning option maybe a fourth spinning option if they choose to go that way mm-hmm. experience in subcontinent experience against spin playing cricket at the moment albeit in the IPL it all kind of makes sense on the other hand if he does poorly in the one day as well that's fine too they've got plenty of bench depth including that A squad with some interesting names uh, getting a run there Matt Renshaw Peter Hanscom Renshaw's now 26 years of age, I mm-hmm. sort of um, hadn't thought about him in Australian calculations for a while, but he should be coming into the prime of his cricketing life. And, yeah, Pete Hanscom, the first time he's been in any Australian squad for probably three or four years.
2: And the the kind of perennial A squad types, you know, as in Nick Maddinson, who's been in so many A squads that I can't even yeah. count them anymore. Mark Steckity, the Steckasaurus, uh, getting another run there. Scott Boland's in the A squad and in the Test squad. Figure that one out. <laughs> you know, I suppose he's kind of a, an A squad player in the test squad because he's usually, you know, behind the other three uh, in terms of fast bowlers and they may not be using a lot of fast bowling over there. I, well, you, you'd suspect it'll be Stark and Cummins um, as automatic picks given Stark can oh, reverse yeah. it and given what he did last time around cool. in 2016. But, uh, you know, and, and well, I Cummins, mean, think of it this play. way
1: if Stark and well, Cummins and Stark have to play, right? Like, it's a given. That'll mean Josh Hazelwood's on the bench again. Uh, Uh which you know talk about luxury and Scott Bowland will be nowhere near the starting 11 this kind of comes back to my point Uh, I heard a whisper the other week that he was inches away from signing a county deal last summer and then his Mm -hmm. life changed dramatically playing for Australia and they decided to go the other way but I genuinely think he'd be better off just not being in these squads, like playing in England, playing with the juice mm. ball, continuing to establish himself in, in these kind of conditions, thinking ahead to England 2023 when he'll certainly be part of the thinking. It feels like a bit of a waste that, yeah, he'll bowl overs in the A squad, but he'll be yeah, next to no chance of playing test cricket. I mean, again, it comes back to the flexibility, doesn't it? I know he's nationally contracted, but does that mean you have to kind of ride shotgun with the A squad just because mm. you've got a deal? Is he better off being deployed elsewhere? I, I think I think the latter.
2: And he's it's like he's nudged Michael Nier out of that spot of being the perennial tourist, but the upshot of that is that Nisa gets to play in England, gets to play first class cricket and and doesn't exactly. have to wander around and carry the drinks and look after people's bags and you know sort of waste his time being a touring player like in in some ways. It must be nice to know that you're close. You know, you're a couple of hamstrings away from playing. But if the, if the injuries happen, they could bring you in as well. You know, rather than having you not play. So, uh, I suppose at least he'll get some game time with Australia A. Eh?
1: Yeah, and the two players who haven't made the official Test squad who were in Pakistan are Marcus Harris, who's just making runs for laughs uh, in the county championship, which we'll talk about a little bit later, uh, and Mark Steckerty, who was brought in for South Africa last year. They didn't tour went to Pakistan, didn't play, now out of the Sri Lankan squad. I mean, he can't be far away. He's also playing county championship cricket at the moment, I should add. But, yeah, I was a little bit surprised to see that. I, I probably would rather see Stekety in the squad than Boland and let Boland mm. stick to what he's doing because the reason Stekety was picked for Pakistan is that they think he might be the kind of player they can turn to for a reverse swing. Um, and that's going to be more of a factor in goal, probably, uh, than it will be in Australia.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I suppose if you've got Stark there to do that job and yeah, uh, they'll yeah. want a couple of spinners and they've got green at six to, to, to do some extra overs and that's pretty much it. That's that's basically the Australian bowling lineup sorted. The only the only question ever these days is if they play a second spinner in the bottom four.
1: Yeah, I'd play three. I I'd I be if I were look, put it this way, if you're a Sri Lankan administrator mm. slash curator, and you watched anything from the 2016 tour, and you were there, Jeff, Um, you were going to prepare two raging turners. I mean, why wouldn't you? That's their comparative advantage. After Australia batted so well uh, in Pakistan, why would you give them the chance to have a toe in the game when you can try? I mean, I I acknowledge that uh, that won't necessarily make for five-day test cricket. It'll probably mean we watch two three-and-a-half-day test matches if they went that way. But why wouldn't you give your home side the best chance of victory? And that will be with presumably three spinners of their own on Raging Turners, which really means the question is, do Australia play three or three and a half spinners? Maxwell as the as the half and then trusts Cameron Green to have the body to get through the limited overs he'll be required to bowl. I mean, Green as the second seamer, I think... And, of course, that complicates matters with Stark. I know that you want to play Stark for his reverse swing and Cummins as the captain. It might be the first time where... Cummins being the captain actually doesn't work with the team balance, but yeah, it's a moot point because, as you say, they'll they'll play the two big quicks and then and then two spinners, and yeah, the, the main question will be: do they want a third spinning option inside the top six?
2: Yeah, and I think I think Maxwell would struggle to get a gig because he'd have to get past Travis Head, who's very much locked in at five these days. Um, he's Bowling is less useful than Maxwell's, but he can bowl a bit. Yeah. And he's still got this up-and-down thing happening where he's back in the one-day squad now, Travis Head, where he, yeah, you
1: know, yeah. he, he
2: did so well in the one as in Pakistan that he's now got himself a, a gong in the
1: ODI squad. And the other player is Labashain. I mean, it, it, Labashain's almost becoming a utility as a bowler. I mean, he, he could bowl seam up in Sri Lanka if they need an extra seamer to, to get some... If they need to bowl some dry overs and it is a flat one, unlikely... Hmm. as it is, you could easily turn to Manus um, to bowl some dry dead overs of seam up because he's doing it in county cricket. And then he should be used more as a leg spinner. He should be bowling more. Hmm. He didn't bowl enough in Pakistan. He did create opportunities. So yeah, I suppose that's the bit I missed in that analysis before is that they do have Labashain who can turn his handsuit to either discipline.
2: Uh, As for England, no surprises in the Rob Key era in that Ben Stokes is the captain. Uh, James Anderson and Stuart Broad are going to make their way back into that team, presumably. I mean, there was yep. there was the sort of, um, I don't know, the token comments from James Anderson saying, oh, well, we'll have to make sure we take wickets in the first couple of rounds of county cricket. And I was like, no, you don't. <laughs> you don't have to. No, <laughs> you've got 650 test wickets. You don't have to do anything you could put your feet up for the whole first few rounds and it shouldn't matter but you know they will be back
1: yeah i i interviewed rob as part of a sort of a little um, group of other people with their video cameras out last week at lords and um his take on broad and anderson is that it was kind of the first thing that Stokes said to him is that i want them back and as he joked Luckily, I share that view. So it would have been a problem had they had a blue over the first selection matter. Of course, I don't have a chief selector, and probably won't before the first test. So Stokes and Rob Key will pick the team. You think that's how the team will get Mm. will get picked? So it's fairly certain those two will play. Helped by the fact that Wokes won't be available. I don't think due to his. Let me get this right. Is it Wokes got a shoulder injury at the moment? I think they've all got injuries. Um, Wood's not available till the end of May. Archer won't play red Bull cricket this summer. Ollie Robinson hasn't played yet for his county with his back issue and the broader fitness issues he's had in the last little while. So it does mean that we could see Anderson, Broad, Saki, Mahmood. Mm-hmm. Maybe Overton. Overton keeps taking wickets for Somerset. I know that he didn't impress... Uh, uh, he didn't... Well, he didn't necessarily bowl in a way that would command selection again in the West Indies, but if they're looking for the most dependable county seamer, he'd be it, but yeah, I think Saqib Mahmood, they've made their call there, haven't they? And Matt Fisher's the other player who got a start in the Caribbean, he's got a back problem as well, so yeah, I think they'd be trending towards uh, Saqib as the third seamer, alongside Broaden Anderson, which could be quite an exciting kind of changing of the guard a little Mm. bit, because It'd be reasonable to say that Saqib's the most likely to lead the attack after those two. So well, that's what you want to see. Together,
2: you you want to see him I get that so, opportunity yeah. because he's, you know, he's the one that brings some excitement to that team. You know, it's yeah. not quite Archer levels of excitement, but he's. Fast, He can reverse it. If that comes up, it probably won't much in the English summer, but you never know here or there. And I don't know. He's the kind of player who's going to make people switch on and and watch. And, you know, if they can bring themselves to to get Matt Parkinson in there as well, well, it could uh, could be something worth watching.
1: Yeah, I think so. And and the importance of the vice-captaincy is another part of this. Like, Stokes will miss Test cricket in the same way that Cummins will miss Test cricket. So it's really important they get that right. Mm. And there is no younger player they can give it to. They could give it to Joe Root. They could give it to Joe Root and say, look, can you do us a favour? In the same way that I've talked about the idea of Broad and Anderson doing them a favour, they Mm -hmm. could just go to Stuart and Jimmy and say, look, you're the vice-captains. If something yeah. goes wrong, you're going to have to step in because, you know, Stokes's body as it is, he's uh, had a number of long-term injuries in the last few years. It, it, you know, it may very well be the case that he starts as captain and breaks down or whatever it is, and they need to have a contingency plan in there. And that'll be partially informed, I suppose, by who they go with as coach or coaches. Interesting that even though Rob's drawn to the idea of two coaches and there's a... Uh, There's a process going along those lines right now. He also said to me that if there's one standout coach and he wants to do both and he's adamant about doing both, they'll, they'll, they'll pick one coach. So, like, they're leaving all of their options open. He didn't answer the Langer question. The first, I mean, I love a, a new administrator or a new person to, to these roles. They're, they're very optimistic and very chatty, and as was Rob, excellent media performer, as you'd expect, given his previous job. And the one time he needed to evade a question was kind of around Langer, and he did a pretty good, pretty good job of it, but he said that no one is formally out of the process. But, yeah, he acknowledged that all of the names that are circulating are, are in his thinking, and, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think I've got a clue as to where they'll land, but in all probability, a red ball coach and a white ball coach will be the, the landing place. As for who, it, it, I mean, it's unlikely we'll know before the New Zealand series.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, whether whether they can get who they want in place, I suppose, but uh, I don't know. He'd, mm. I find it the least interesting thing to think about in cricket is who's coaching which team like there's so much attention on it and i think it's a i think it's a bleed over from football particularly in england where it's all about the manager and it's all about you know they always describe every team as as belonging to you know this person's team you know Klopp's liverpool and blah 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 it's all about the manager there's this sort of cult of celebrity about the manager and and, and the coach and like coaches can screw things up like they can they can make it impossible or very difficult for a team to win by uh, you know and you saw that with Silverwood at times but that was because he was also being allowed to be the sole selector but if a coach has got a dog shit team then it's not going to win you know it doesn't matter who the coach is doesn't matter what they do so I I just I wish that we could get away from uh, hearing so much about coaches and, and thinking about them so much
1: yeah it's it's a good point, and the the counterbalance to that is or the counterweight to that is someone like Andrew McDonald. I heard him interviewed on on Jared Waiteley show yesterday, and uh, you know his attitude is, well, all we are there to do, or what we are there to do as support staff is to provide the players with a series of good options every day and then let the players do their thing and let the the captain to steer the ship. I mean, it's not about being incredibly hands on, it's about providing them with feedback when they've played after they've played, mm. preparing them for what they're about to see. Instant feedback at lunch and tea during a test match or during the innings break of a of a one day international. And providing them with a series of options based on the information they can glean. I mean it's not that complicated. It's nowhere near as interventional as to say, yeah, what you pointed out before, a football manager who is, you know, Moving the chess pieces for ninety minutes, or, or a football coach in the code that we're more familiar with, where you are making strategic structural changes, sort of minute to minute, mm-hmm. with the uh, with the with the resources you have at your disposal and interchange bench and all of that. With a cricket team, you know, you kind of got to dance with the one that brung you after you've picked your eleven, and that's a big part of it too. But yeah, listening to McDonald speak about the role in quite a calm, collective manner was a it was refreshing. I don't think we're going to see him being a big part of the story. I think he'll kind of be out. One, one out, one back in a in a similar way to what Trevor Bailey did with the England white ball team when he didn't let them coach themselves. Far from it, but he did provide them with the freedom to play the sort of cricket that they felt they needed to play without him being over their shoulder every five minutes. He, he gave them he gave them that agency. I suppose you would say. All
2: right, give me the quick burst on the county stuff. Uh, a lot of draws okay. I noticed over the weekend. It was raining at yes. times. Some of the games didn't get to conclusions, but some of them did.
1: Yeah, I'll I'll give you a grab bag, shall I? There was wild scoring at the Oval, where there was like 603 for Surrey against 443 for two for Gloucestershire. The reason I mention that mainly is that uh, Marcus Harris made another century. He is going beautifully. Lost his contract didn't get picked for Sri Lanka, which we touched on before, but, but on he goes. There was a, a game at the Rose Bowl between Hampshire and Lancashire where there were no spinners to be seen. Parkinson was dropped from the Lancashire team due to conditions, and at one stage, Hampshire were 40 for 5 with you know Jimmy and Hassan Ali, who we mentioned before, Tom Bailey and other seamer, but they, they kind of got their way back into the game with a, a century from Nick Gubbins, who came over from Middlesex last year. He, in fact, he made, he made twin tons, but the noteworthy point from an international perspective is that Anderson's match figures of 6 for 60 certainly stand out there. So, if he did need to take wickets before the international summer, he started that well. Daniel Bell Drummond, Jeff, we've got to go back a while since the last time he's got to mention on the mm. final word. But back to back centuries for Kent look, I don't think he's going to get picked in the squad or anything like that, but they could do worse. He's a man of vast experience these days and someone who <laughs> I think he scored more runs for England under 19s than anyone ever. So, it's not as though he hasn't got the pedigree, it's just yep. that he's never made the undeniable case for, for selection at any Particular time, uh, but, Harry Brooke, but, but where we are now,
2: though, Adam, is that anybody who makes a hundred in county cricket, you can say, "Got to play for England." Get him in. You're like that—that's yes. this is the place. This is the beautiful open field <laughs> of opportunity. Like all you need to do is have one good innings, and and you are you'll have a groundswell of support for the first test.
1: Well, well, likewise with Yorkshire, who who Kent were playing against Harry Brook, one ninety four. They see him as part of that next generation coming through. He's played some, is it T twenty for England now? Or maybe a couple of one day internationals, but he's there and thereabouts for that Test squad. Davah Balan keeps making runs, another 100, 152, So yeah. you couldn't rule it out. Compton, who you were watching the other week, Jeff, uh, he made another. He faced another two hundred and twenty balls, which feels more relevant than the ninety three runs that he made. I did bat long enough to to save that game. Darren Stevens was dropped this week, Jeff. So for all of those uh, super fans out there who are insistent that the only way forward for English cricket is to pick a 46-year-old, um, when even Darren Stevens wouldn't <laughs> make that case, um, they might just take a setback for a moment. Somerset won by an innings over Warwickshire, who are really battling the champions from last year. And Somerset, after a rough start, are on the board. Matt Renshaw, uh, 129, returning to the club, where he made three centuries back in, in 2018. DV two Chiteshwa Pajara... 203 of the best yes. he made a double hundred two weeks ago 100 last week 203 this week out of 538 538 he's got to play Not for more. England
2: get him in get him in for the first test <laughs>
1: Yeah, that was against Durham and Alex Lees. The problem there, I suppose, for for these players trying to find a way through, is Alex Lees has made two hundreds now um, this season for Durham, and he is the incumbent opener from uh, from the West Indies series. Shaheen Afridi put on a clinic at Lords. Uh, Jeff, uh, at one point, he was on a hat trick inside the first quarter of an hour of the game against poor old Leicestershire. I mean, they didn't really stand a chance with <laughs> Shaheen charging and doing as we've seen him do pretty regularly <laughs> this time with the Duke's ball. And I was about to interview Kesey for this, uh, you know, for that aforementioned and press day and I I saw on Twitter that Shaheen was on a hat-trick so I sprinted through between the Compton and the Edrich, you know kind of between uh, well where the press box is really and from 150 metres away got my phone out just in case he took a hat-trick and it would have been you know the first time I've seen a first class hat-trick as we know but thus it was never meant to be but he took six wickets for the match Roland Jones took five for I think him in the second dig Mm -hmm. Middlesex won easily a a ton for Mark Stoneman remember him it's uh, another one of these um former England openers who, who keeps making runs these days uh, for Middlesex having crossed the river. Uh, he'd, he'd and, be, yeah, there'd Middlesex. be a
2: sporkle, wouldn't there, for like who's opened for England in the last 10 years and there'd be about yes. 46 entries on it.
1: <laughs> Yeah, he'd be in there for sure. Not to top of the table in Division 2 with Middlesex second. Uh, they had Dane Patterson take 8 for 52 against Warwickshire. Stuart Broad took 4 in the second innings, which again, if he's thinking about you know players who, it would stand out if they weren't taking wickets, I suppose is the the better way of looking at it. And then last but not least, uh, Shah Massoud let us down, Jeff. He, he uh-huh. made, only made 102 runs for the match, 60 oh. in the first innings and 42 in the second. So that takes him to within 287 runs of reaching 1,000 by the end of May and they've got two more games, you'd have to say he's more likely to get it than not to get it from there. Would that be reasonable? 287 in, in two matches the way he's going at the moment.
2: I guess the problem is that if he, say he makes you know 150 in the first innings, then he probably won't bat. Twice in in the match. True. Um, so True. It, so if he has like a big innings and then he fails in the the second game, then he'll be stranded well short. He needs like he needs to do it in in sixties or seventies, you know, so to make sure he gets yeah. a, a decent chunk. You're of, right. Energy. It's as though he
1: needs to he needs to make forty odd in the first dig, mm. and then make a blazing hundred in this like a runner ball hundred in the second to get him within a yep. hundred or so for the last game. Pajara's in the mixer too, by the way. He's on five thirty one. So I mean, I know that. You know, to, to add another four hundred and sixty nine runs in, in two matches is unlikely. But Pajaro does have two double hundreds already to his name in this season. It was a great game. Glamorgan had a real pop at chasing down three hundred and thirty one in fifty five overs. Marnus made a runner ball, eighty five. Sam Northeast was there with him. He made eighty one in the middle overs, but then the collapse came as it always does in a chase, Jeff, and and they and they put it away uh, with a couple of overs to go and and shook hands, eight down about thirty or forty away from the victory target. So yeah, that's the answer. Yeah, um, runs galore. There was a lot of rain about on the fourth day, but heaps of tonnes. And yeah, so we've had both sides of the, the ledger, haven't we, in the last two years? 12 mm-hmm. months ago, it was, well, why can't they prepare pitches that, that see uh, batters able to, to reach three figures? And now it's like, why, why is there nothing in it for the bowlers? And you know, you kind of go through this <laughs> back and forth. And But yeah, it's, I think it's a, a, a good thing that uh, the next generation or the next group of England players, potentially, at least uh, uh, in the practice of making centuries at this stage of the year and it only gets more challenging in May. We know that May is a tougher month to bat than April historically. So yes we'll see what comes next week.
2: Well it is a, a fact often forgotten that there are two components to the game of cricket. The bowling side and the batting side and sometimes uh, one one type of of player can do better and sometimes the other type can do better. All of these things are true. I think that we should, before we get to our end interview, we should just do mm. a little just a little, just a one number, just a little game of Nerd Pledge. Nerd Pledge is the game that we play with all the nice people on the patron page. They back the show. They fund the show by sending through contributions, but they're not normal denominations of currency. They're very specific ones, and they relate to cricket in some way, and we have to work out what that number means. A very specific currency has been selected by Owen, who has chosen Danish kroner to send through to us at the final word.
1: Oh, is this kroner?
2: yes. Yes. I
1: thought this was, uh, I thought DKK was the currency where I am in Dubai. Ah. I had a feeling DKK was, uh, is it Dura? Yeah, Dirhams. You know dirhams. What is, uh, dirhams, rather. I'm going to Google it on the fly. DKK I, currency. Why don't we just check this before you? It is. It is. Oh, no, sorry. My apologies. It, 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 you're right. It's Danish krona. Mm-hmm. It's just Google's automatically bringing up UAE currency. So, okay. Dirham Dura- right.
2: is, I can't remember what the code for a Dirham I think it's AED. Right, okay. As in, it's it's okay. uh, it's Emirati something Emirati dirhams, I reckon. Right. But don't take my word for it. You know, if you're a forex trader, <laughs> you'll know. Uh, so this is definitely in Danish kroner and it is sixteen. Now, I don't know what the smaller part of a krona is called, like krona cents, 16 krona and 90 krona cents, if you will, 1690. Now, the decimal could be anywhere in that number. It might not be in the number at all. We don't know. We have to find something that is 1690 that relates to cricket. Your shot, Adam.
1: Yeah, Owen, oh, I'm going to give you a few options here and, and see where we land. So the first thing I did, when I see 1690, I think match figures. Like that's the first thing my brain jumps to. And But the closest was 16 for 88 by uh, John Newman, a man by the name of John Newman, uh, for Hampshire against Somerset in 1927. I wonder if they called him Sam. So, yeah, so there's no 16 for 90s. I was thinking also, look, maybe it's something to do with 16 test tons. And uh, So I, I, I had a look at all those who made 16 test hundreds. Well, Sir Afghan Ghoulie, Sixteen hundreds and hit exactly nine hundred boundaries. So if you want that to work, you can. Mm. Sixteen test hundreds hitting exactly nine hundred boundaries. I would be I'd be open to that, Owen, if that is your answer. Mm. Is um, that is that nine hundred fours or nine hundred fours and sixes? Nine hundred fours, yeah. Nine hundred fours according to his um Crick Info page. But the other number or the other statistical category you might leap to when you're thinking about sixteen point nine is bowling averages and that was the average uh, by a man by the name of George Farmer Bennett, who was a Kent round-arm bowler of the mid-1800s. He picked up 612 wickets for Kent, 41 fifers, and 10 in a match uh, on 12 occasions. He actually visited Australia in in 1861-62, the the sort of pre-test era, and took 14 wickets at the MCG. They only played one game that was declared first class for that tour. And, yes, our man our man Farmer Bennett uh, dominated, took seven for both times around. Uh, That was uh, two teams known as The World playing Surrey. So there's a first-class team out there just called The World, not World (laughs) 11, The World. (laughs) Mr. World. (laughs) Yes, Mr. World, Mr. Worldwide. And he also made 72. Uh, I think he was playing for The World. I think I'm right in saying against Surrey. So he bowled out Surrey twice and made 72, batting at number four. So a pretty bloody good match, you know, uh, 14... 14 wickets and and an important half-century in a low-scoring game. He got in strife on that tour, though, uh, because on the boat on the way home, they were playing, I guess, their version of deck cricket, and he was using a a 10-pin as a bat, and it flew out of his hand and busted someone's face open. So he was more (laughs) known for that than he was the 14 wickets that he'd taken uh, at the MCG. The other thing to note about Farmer Bennett is that he was the... You'll love this, Jeff. He was the first man ever given out... Handled the ball. Oh. This was a decade on, in, in August 1872, uh, playing against Sussex at Hove. He picked up a ball that was, quote, lodged in his clothing. I don't know what that means exactly. I suppose mm-hmm. it kind of like Dino when it was caught in his front pad against India in 91-92 and, and flicked it away, but they... they They appealed and he was given out for a duck. So that's a a notable uh, part of the Farmer Bennett story. Also is the fact that he got uh, Grace stumps for a duck in the first game that Grace played for the players of the South against the gentlemen of the South. Two more great first class names for you there. So let's just leave Farmer Bennett there for a moment. And uh, given we've we've already started talking about the laws of the game with handled the ball... uh, I thought maybe there could be a link there with um, 16.9 as a bit of a last resort here. That's known as the mistakes in scoring subsection of the laws of the game. It reads, If, after the players and umpires have left the field, in the belief that the match has been concluded... The umpires discover a mistake in scoring has occurred, which affects the result. Then subject to 16.10, they shall adopt the following procedure. Then I forgot to copy and paste what the following procedure would be from the MCC laws of the game. So, um, I'm not sure what that is. Let's assume it's not that.
2: This is our version of it. Tune in next week to find out what the following (laughs) procedure is for law 16.9.
1: Yeah, and the last thing I jumped into here, I thought maybe the 16th of September. We've had a few birthdays recently and I saw Susie Bates last night and on the 16th of September this year, she will turn 35. She's 34 at the moment. But let us know, Owen, if, if any of those uh, tick the box for you and if they don't, uh, we can come back to it on Story Time uh, in the next couple of weeks. Susie Bates,
2: on oh no, birthday, on oh no, birthday. birthday.
1: Um, very good, very good, Adam. I like it.
2: Uh, it's gone all over the place and it's taught us about some, I mean, that is a pre-Dusty, Dusty Old Bastard. Um, Farmer Bennett, uh, with his pioneering dismissal work. He planted the seed, the farmer, uh, from which many great things grew. All right, it's the final word. This is the halfway point. Uh, Let's go to our interview with Patrick Foster and Will McPherson.
1: Hi, I'm Matt Renshaw, and you're listening to the Final Word podcast. Talking about a gambling book on on a cricket podcast is ardently
3: anti-gambling. (laughs) Welcome. In the public domain. Yeah, it's uh, it's strange. It still doesn't really feel real to have a book or call myself an author, but obviously I'm very proud of what we've produced. Feedback that we've had so far from people that have read it and The reviews have been overwhelming to be honest but uh, yeah it was it was quite the process going through it had to had to dig pretty deep at times but now it's now it's out there i'm i'm really proud of of what what's what's on the paper Yeah, I mean obviously what started as a bit of fun I never thought would would end up where it did and I think the kind of whole process it feels like it was almost no time at all to me but when you read the book you realise sort of how much of a kind of slow drip it is and, and what you have to go through to reach where I did. I think in terms of kind of the story and, and the climax of it obviously that bit was was really difficult to articulate but I'm just glad I'm here to tell the tale and hopefully it'll, it'll help other people along the way you
1: had before uh, the book yeah, was written and I mean you start
0: the book at the crossroads so yeah. you, you choose to start the book...
4: yeah so I'm Patch and I have known each other for about f- 13, 14 years So I'm, his younger brother who, who looked, for those of you watching on YouTube Looks quite a lot like Patch but just not quite as good looking um, And we, so I was, you know, was one of my best mates And yep. we, we were very close and through him I knew Patch pretty well of, Through that whole time, we'd see each other I guess a couple of times a year and like everyone else, I had no idea what was going on until in 2018, I got a call from his brother saying, look, this has happened with, with Patch's, um getting help because he's, he's had a, a dreadful gambling addiction. And then in a, a couple of years later, when, when lockdown hit, Patch got in touch with me and said, look, I've, I've got this story, I, I've, I've written some words down And this was literally two days into lockdown or something And he'd written 60,000 words Which I I reckon might be indicative (laughs) of a slightly addictive personality But um, he said, look, can you have a look at it? Do you you think this is like a potential book? Um, And I I had a look at it and I was like I knew elements of the story I knew uh, knew certainly the situation at the end But I was kind of like As you said there, my jaw was on the floor as well uh, I couldn't quite believe what had been what was in front of me, and I was like, "We have to. You, you're going to need some help working on this." But we, we, yeah, there's a book here. Do, do, you, uh, do you want me to get involved? And luckily, he said yes. And then we spent most of that lockdown period working quite hard on it. And then, yeah, almost two years after we started working on it, it came out this February. So it's quite a process. And as Pat says, he he had to dig pretty deep. Like you know, I was reading what he'd provided. And then, uh, you know, I was kind of... You know, I'm a journalist, so I kind of recognised what the story was at certain points, and I had to go back to him and keep pushing to get more and more out and find out more and more. And there was always a bit more to come. It was amazing, like, the, the, the you know, the kind of breadth of this story. And I think also with what Patch does now, we were able to provide, I, I think, a very uplifting end mm. where the book starts at kind of a depth of despair, but then it finishes with... Some pretty considered thoughts on gambling and addiction more widely, the industry, Patch's job now is is devoted to all that stuff and he's mm. he's got some pretty good ideas about the direction of travel. So I think it we we you know we weren't really sure what it was, was it a memoir, biography, self-help book, all of those things. And I think it's somewhere between that Venn diagram at the end.
1: And you unpick it. It isn't about necessarily the climax. That's dealt with in the first, as I say, 10 or 15 pages. You go back to the very start...
3: Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the sort of motivations for writing the book and doing what I do now is to kind of dispel this myth that it only happens to certain people. Um, And I was probably slightly naive to that when I was younger. I kind of had this opinion that addiction happened to people from sort of broken homes dysfunctional family backgrounds troubled circumstances and there i was quite the opposite reasonably intelligent a lot of things going for me and yet it, it happened to me so i think it does just show that it, it can happen to to anybody often the people that you, you least expect it to Yeah, I mean, if people talk about addi- the links between addiction and trauma, and trauma comes in all sorts of different ways, uh, I guess. And and for me, dealing with the fallout of, of being released when I was, was I underestimated the impact it had on me, but I found that really, really tough. Mm. And one of the issues I had, of course, was like so many people, I didn't want to let on that I was struggling or it affected me because nothing had ever affected me to... To that point or I hadn't struggled with anything and, and coming to terms with that meant that gambling started to play a different part to what it did before that and and as you say there's kind of various different points there's four or five watershed moments in the book that that kind of trigger some sort of change in my relationship with gambling and and just accelerate the process uh, and dig me deeper into that that hole you described.
0: Yeah,
4: a proper cricketer who, yeah. you know, you, you, how old are you now? Thirty-five. Probably could still be playing right. if things had, paths had gone slightly different. I mean, you are still playing club cricket, obviously, but paths had gone slightly differently. What I like, Patch doesn't doesn't say that gambling had anything to do with his, uh, you know, release by Northants. He got released by Northants because at that time cricket just wasn't quite working for you. He got a couple of injuries and mm-hmm. didn't play as well as you had been. All those kind of things. It, who knows what what could have been if you weren't gambling, but yeah, the the proper player.
1: That cricket release point, you've already said, it's one of the the turning points, and then that leads into going into the the real world, like the civilian life, getting a job job in London, as so many people do, and being exposed to the bright lights of a big city, and just explain how it started there's a bit in the book where you had your, your first win and you later described that you were always chasing that high
3: but yeah um, I'd never really placed a bet until I was 19 and mm. the first bet I put was on a fixed odds betting terminal, a fob team machine as they're often referred to in a shop I put two pounds in a roulette machine and put it on zero because it was the only number that was different from all the others it was as simple as that and And that, one, it came in, two pounds became 72 pounds. And as you say, 72 pounds isn't going to change anybody's life. But Mm -hmm. it was the feeling that it gave me. I'd never had it before, and obviously I'd never have it again. And I understand now, having kind of gone through the process of treatment and therapy, that I pretty much spent the next 12 and a half years trying to replicate that elusive feeling. And I think it's the same for a lot of, of gambling addicts, is that feeling is like nothing else and, and you're trying to get it over and over again and you can't. And of course when I had other big wins along the way it came close but no amount of money was ever gonna be enough, no rush buzz hit was the same as that first one.
1: Yeah, you, you talk about thresholds that at the time, you know, you might be five grand away from a hundred thousand ahead to pick at a number. So many
0: betting accounts
3: spread safety. Yeah, and when I was in London, it was it was weird because the amount of money that we're talking about are huge sums of money for somebody of, of the age that I was. But at that moment in life it was like oh, well i didn 't need the money, so I might as well gamble it and try and turn it into even more money and Of course, now I realized that that in itself was was a sure sign that there was something wrong because most people who won that amount of money would, would do something sensible with it, but that moment just meant that from then on i was I was constantly trying to win more, being very competitive, we talk about it in the book as well mm. i i had this kind of habit of when i lost i wouldn't stop until i won and then when you win you think well i'll stop but actually you just love that feeling and and that was like the drug for me getting out of london i thought at the time that changing my lifestyle would get rid of the problem and to be honest it it did for a very short period of time but i realize now i needed to to change a lot more than that and and change me really and it's not
1: long after i mean you explain in the book you're in a that long before it's a it's a pretty sharp u-turn and it all comes
3: down to yeah definitely and I, i i talk about the moment that i left london when i had this kind of realization and i actually i can remember it to this day sort of looking myself in the mirror having put on a lot of weight and being in the situation that i was and thinking back and thinking it was only a few years ago that you were in this situation and and look at you now and I mean, that, of course, we I could talk about all the regrets and, and everything that went wrong. I'd spend my life beating myself up about it, but that is the point which I do really regret because it was then that I realised I had a problem and I should have done something about it, and, and I didn't. And, of course, then what happened for the next eight, ten years, it just got worse and worse.
1: Yeah, and, then, like, in Will some of the sports that you were betting on, and the and the types of machines, it just gets kind of like
4: definitely. Uh, also, one of the things that I found absolutely incredible about writing it with Patch was his recall. Not only for things that happened, but even like down to minute numbers, you know, you can, you can, you can, you can tell you what he won to two decimal places and we're talking four figure sums. It is crazy. I think one of the things I find interesting is someone, you know, very lucky to have never had any issues with addiction or anything like that and never really had great interest in gambling either was, as you said, Patrick was so into the thrill and winning and lose but losing as well was fine because you had a dog in the fight you, you know you just yes. wanted you wanted what you what, what you were trying to achieve was the experience of having the ball rolling around in a roulette machine mm-hmm. that period where you don't know what's going to happen that's what, what was really addictive I think for you as a really competitive beast and then just it didn't matter what you were betting on after that you know it started at things you liked I and mean, then it developed into things that you didn't give a toss about. And it, it, that is that is amazing to me, uh, just the depths it got to.
0: And in the patch persona, I mean... You...
1: In all sorts of different ways, so you're sort of maintaining one life...
3: Yeah, I sometimes think to myself I should become an actor or something because <laughs> I sort of you do become so good at it. And we always say if you're a compulsive gambler, you're a compulsive liar, right. and and that's that's what I was. I was I was just living this lie, but I was able to kind of maintain this Jekyll and Hyde type persona where I could turn it on and off like a tap. And I, I talk to now kids that I used to teach, and they say to me you were the last teacher we ever thought something was wrong with or you had something else going on but but that was intentional for me I tried to paint this picture that everything was great when actually underneath it my world was falling apart and and what was going on behind closed doors was very different to to what was going on in front of other people and that was the exhausting bit I think and I always say I knew at some point I was going to get fanned out because there was just no way i could I could keep keep it up like I was because it it just took so much energy and so much effort, but it is frightening that other people I always think, well, how did people not notice but it's only when people read the book or you talk to people. They had no idea and it's, it, that's, that's the really thing.
4: And, and you're right about getting caught. You're always going to have to get caught because there was no organic way out. There was no walking away. You know, there was no, there was, no, was no figure that would have been enough for you. You'd have kept going back. So you're right. You, it was always going to come crashing down in some way. And unfortunately it came crashing down in the way that it did in the end with you here. And, yeah, and it could have
1: killed you before. I mean, you took. Talk- when you're able to keep the balls in the air, just looking.
3: Okay. Yeah, and, and so many times where you almost—you talk about spinning plates and dropping balls. It's absolutely right. There are so many times where I almost kind of gave up and <laughs> found a way to, yeah. to kind of go again, or if you like, a, a way out. And I mean, the moment in in South Africa was was obviously hugely significant and and I think that was a big change in my mental health as well because at that point it was when obviously went through that awful trauma but actually there was part of me as as kind of sinister and as deep as it sounds that wished I was on the other side of the foot and Mm -hmm. that was quite hard to sort of deal with and, and sort of comprehend but yet I still managed to sort of come back from that and even things like that didn't kill me But I guess the big turning point was when at the end there was, as far as I was concerned, it was the first time that there was no way out. The Mm -hmm. the secret was coming out and and that's what I was trying to avoid and it became a, a matter of life and death. Yeah, uh, and I think that, that bit, those 20 minutes in that classroom was probably the, the worst bit because I couldn't do anything, there was no escape as far as I was concerned I knew what was going through my mind and there was a million and one things going through my mind but at the same time absolutely nothing mm-hmm. because I, I kind of said what I had and convinced myself that was the right thing to do And actually, I was at a school the other day talking, and one of the the pupils was actually in that lesson. And and I remember him being in that classroom, partly because he was a redhead like me, and (laughs) I remember him being in there, and and when I was telling the story, I was sort of looking at him, and it brought back quite a lot of kind of vivid memories. But yeah, it was... um, it was quite something, and the circumstances almost sound like they're made up, but that's what went on
1: towards the end after we passed that threshold point you're able to, as will pointed out before, use the opportunity to
3: Yeah, and, and that's ultimately what has to change, as I make clear, and, and as I say on a regular basis, I'm not anti-gambling, I don't believe that gambling should be banned, I recognise that lots mm. of people can do it and not have a problem with it, and it's a form of entertainment, it's like using the analogy, if you're an alcoholic and you try to shut down every pub. Sure. But what can't continue is, is the kind of taking advantage of vulnerable people, I think there's some statistics around the percentage of their profits that come from a small percentage of people, and, and that, has to, that has to shift. That can't continue. And hopefully we'll see that things like VIP schemes will become a thing of the past, because I probably felt foul to the system at, at the worst time when it was very commercially driven, which I think it still is, but there was no social responsibility whatsoever. And I think that's slowly changing, but not quick enough. And I hope that by sharing my story and others that do it, they realise that actually it's not right for that to go on and and that if other people are in that situation, that they see the light and they realise that, like me, they're being taken advantage of and um, getting out is the best thing you'll ever do.
4: Yeah, I mean, so I think Patch was probably the first person who had been a professional cricketer to talk about your gambling addiction to the extent that you have, but then since you, you kind of came out with your story, Chris Wood who yeah. of Hampshire, who now works with Patch but also still plays professional cricket... He's sort of told his story as well And I think it does strike me That's the tip of the iceberg And all the things we've been talking about About people, you know, sports people More broadly, but maybe cricketers particularly just something about the game and the numbers And all those kind of things But sports people more broadly With those competitive instincts And all of those things Do make you vulnerable to addiction more widely But particularly gambling addiction And that's why, I guess, the work that Patch does now Is pretty important
1: Yeah, and I guess the time I guess that's one... One hook, isn't it? Doing not a lot waiting for yeah. your turn. Mobile in your hand, as we know, a phone is a
3: Yeah, and I think one of the things that I think is really important from an educational point of view with players is, as you say, we all know it goes on a lot anecdotally and it happens in in changing rooms a lot of guys are, are doing it on a day to day basis but actually when they stop playing or transition out of the game that's what worries me more than anything because at some point every professional athlete whatever sport they're in has to transition out of the game and people find that really difficult but if you are a big gambler and you've got that type of personality which so many do then when you stop getting the Russian buzz that you get from being out there, from mm. taking a wicket, whatever it might be, you need something else to replace it and it's very hard to find things too and, and that's when I think a lot of people's problems manifest themselves and, and that's what really worries me with a lot of with cricketers, it might not necessarily be when they're playing but actually what happens when, when they stop.
1: 20 or 21 and one thing's stopping when the other thing's getting in cricket. And we know it's cricket's eviction.
4: Yeah, across sport, I mean, you, you look at Premier League and I think it's, what is it this year? Like something like 11 of the 20 clubs have got a gambling sponsor on their shirts. Most of them are like Chinese gambling companies yeah. that no one in this country even uses. Like, it's crazy the, the, the extent of it. I think one thing that I was just thinking about when Patch talked talking then as well, the crazy, and, and this fits in in a kind of teen context and sport context about it's just the invisibility of, of this thing. So if you get addicted to alcohol, which I think Patch would accept at some stages of his story, he was also a gamb- uh, an alcoholic, mm-hmm. but if you're addicted to uh, alcohol or um, you know, class A drugs or whatever there there are visible signs of deterioration physically um, and you know you put on some weight and you looked a bit different to where you do now but it, it wasn't there was no indi- there's no indication physically about you know that somebody's a, a gambling addict and I, I just find that you know so you see you've got mates or you know sports people whoever and you look at them and you, you would never know on the surface what's going on I think one of the things Pat up You you kind of touched on it before, but you often get asked, like, how did, how did no one know, how did no one spot? And well, I I think, you know, I know your family, and I know how unbelievably caring as a group of people they are, and you know, I think they did have a sense that something was up, but they couldn't put their finger on exactly what it was. Partly because not that many people know about gambling addiction, I don't think, or know what they're looking for. Um, and it wasn't through a lack of caring they didn't find out. It was partly because you were so good at hiding it uh, and partly because there was no outward sign. And I just, yeah, that that's what makes it so incredibly dangerous. In,
3: in the book, we definitely found that one of the hardest things to articulate because we didn't want people to read the book and think, well, everybody around them must have been idiots because mm, they enabled mm. the behaviour or they didn't try and intervene. Actually, they did, and I either pushed them away or. They just had no idea the extent that it was going on and and also because of the the stigma that's attached, I think people don't want to believe that it's gambling um because it's still a bit of a dirty word and and people think you're an idiot if if you if you do it and you get yourself into a mess, it's almost like others around you. They don't want to believe that, that gambling is the thing that, that's caused it when actually I think more often than not it might be the thing driving these kind of significant changes in behaviour. Yeah,
1: right. So people around you feel as though it's a, a failing partly on their shoulders. Like they're the safety net and they haven't caught you. Exactly. And there's that element of guilt in the foot of it that way. That's yeah. really interesting.
4: And I, I suppose from the, the point of view of hiding it, you... Uh I think the, the, the moment... The book is chaotic, right? The story yeah. is mad. But the, the bit where it gets really nuts is when you meet Charlotte, who's now your wife. Mm. You're by then such a skilled liar uh, and kind of con artist that she, you managed to keep it from her for the first 18 months of your relationship. And we have some extracts from her in the book because felt, we felt it was important that, again, it's that thing about, oh, I don't want anyone to think that the people around you are idiots because they're definitely not you've just, you know, you've managed to uh, keep it from them. And, you know, but, but basically the only hint you might have got was that you were spending too long on the toilet because you were, you, that was when you knew you could spend time on your own. And that's the extent, that's how good you got. You were living with someone, very much in love with them, but also able to keep this extraordinary thing from them.
1: And and now after, and they've helped you in in different ways, but um, we're...
3: yeah I mean I owe an awful lot to the the PCA and and the trust attached uh, to it I think one of the big things we'll mention there about there hadn't been many people who'd come out and and talked about it I think Craig Spearman was was the first but um, I don't I don't know too much about him, but it, it never seemed like he, he sort of got the help that he, he maybe needed. Mm. And so I wanted to, to say, look, this does happen to people and, and be the person that, that perhaps provided that education because I look back at when I was on the academy at Northampton and there was lots of stuff put in place that was great, but no one ever talked to me about that issue and I thought, well, it needs to be because, as you said, it goes on so much. And so what they're doing in terms of the education and awareness is is huge, but also that ongoing support. And I always say that's probably the most incredible thing about it as an organisation, is you can understand them providing the level of support that they do to players playing at the highest level whilst they're playing. But it's the fact that 10 years on, having played nine first-class games for Durham Muni, I was able to turn to them as an organisation, and they treated me in the same way that they would anybody. And that that's what i think is extraordinary and, and i talked a lot about kind of transition and after and i think they're doing a lot more on that which is brilliant but also it's it's knowing that you've got that safety net of of support for essentially the rest of your life is is incredible the
4: education thing chimed with me as well as someone who you know wasn't a professional cricketer but i was I, you know I, I did come from a a privileged background like Patch I went to a nice school I went to a nice university and I had you know I would have been, I would have sat in dozens of talks over the years as I was growing up and I got told not to drink too much and don't smoke because it would give you cancer yeah. and all of those things I got told about drugs but I don't I have no memory of ever being spoken to about gambling yeah. so that really and that might that is probably a generational thing you know we're all both in our thirties maybe now school kids are being taught about this stuff much more but it did really chime with me when we were sorting out the end of the book i i was the same i'd never had any no no one had ever mentioned it to me and then a lot of people who are in their you know 30s and 40s now i think would have would have had massive problems with gambling that's not why necessarily but raising awareness can only help
3: Yeah, uh, I'm, very, I mean, I'm very fortunate to do what I do now. I, I mean, I came out of rehab, treatment, whatever you want to call it, and I had a burning desire to do it. I always say not because I thought I was some sort of hero who could change the world, but actually I genuinely didn't want other people to go through what I did. And having worked in education, had this mm-hmm. education, I realised nobody was doing it, and I thought, well, I've almost got a sort of duty of care to do it and use my experiences but also there is a selfish element to it because it is good for me it's cathartic it's a reminder of where I was and where I never want to be again so it helps me and and other people the focus of what I do is, is predominantly in schools with young people to hopefully educate them before they start doing it I mean we all know young people are exposed to it now in, in ways that they didn't used to so that needs to happen at an earlier and earlier age but at least they're then able to to start doing it and make a kind of more informed choice or decision. And, of course, giving something back to to cricket is great, so the work with the PCA that that Woody and I have been doing for the last few years through Epic has been great for us both because we're hopefully giving something back to them as organisations. And the kind of world of professional sport is still the the biggest area that, that we do... Whether it's in the UK or, or now in the US, which is in a very different place, but, but growing at quite an alarming rate, it needs to happen.
4: And that, what you're saying there about young people and the different ways they're exposed, I guess to put some flesh on that bone... Th- th- you're talking in a way about gaming is what i guess you'd call gambling adjacent and there's there are gambling behaviors involved in that where you you know you spend money buying things but you don't know what you're buying right and professional sports people coming back around to that that's another of the you know a lot of these guys the girls are really into their gaming it's so that is it's gambling behavior it might not be betting on horses you know like the way we used to but it, it it's an entry point it's a it's a gateway drug i guess and even now like i mean we we, i haven't we haven't spoken too much about this but even things like nfts and stuff have linked to all links to all of these things this is more things that bring professional sports people into this conversation i think and and more risk for them we're just at the start of that journey and conversation i think but it's
1: quite an interesting one
3: Yeah, absolutely. I wish I wasn't playing this weekend after the state of some of my batting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, I mean it's great to be, be, um, be playing again and actually it's a really important part of my recovery because nothing will ever replace gambling but I need that kind of competitive fix that someone like me does and, and playing sport whether it's on the golf course, playing cricket on a Saturday, whatever it might be, having that is, is really important and yeah, it's, it's it's good fun and, and being in that environment I don't try and influence what the lads do when they're, when they're not playing it's up to them but actually it's a game that I've kind of re-found my love for and, and weirdly I almost feel like I did when I first started, like a kid again because for so long I, I lost that love and, and having it back now is, is massive so yeah, it's, it's a nice way to kind of complete the circle if you like
1: Mike Bite: The Secret Life of a Gambling Addict.
3: Thanks so much for having us, mate.
0: Hi, my name's Kate Cross, and you're listening to the Final Word with Adam and Jeff.
2: This is the final word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins and uh, an interview Adam that I know you were excited to do for a number of weeks leading up to it and it's a it's a pretty bleak tale but a, a very interesting one.
1: Yeah, I, I actually read that book uh, in the A and E ward of uh, of the hospital when I got in my accident the other week. I had it in my bag and I thought, you know what, what better time to read it and. Um, I mean, maybe it was the state of mind I was in when going through the pages, but it had a big effect on me. And, yeah, if you've listened to that interview, I wouldn't be surprised if it's had a big effect on you as well because Patrick is so forthright about his story. And, you know, talking to Will, Will put so much work into getting all of the detail out of the subject, if you like, in, in the way they, they brought it together um, during that lockdown period. And, yeah, it's going to be an award-winning book, I'm I'm certain of it. A cautionary tale to an extent, but also yeah bringing awareness to the fact that there probably are loads of cricketers out there who are suffering in silence and due to people like Patrick hopefully uh, they'll feel comfortable in in coming forward and and speaking to those they need to speak to and and trying to get on top of things hopefully before it gets to the stage that it did for Patrick where it was you know nearly fatal so yeah I, I strongly recommend it might bite the secret of a gambling addict
2: and in the meantime uh, cricket boards all over the world will keep plastering ads from yeah. these companies all over their product uh, a bunch of the domestic teams in South Africa have been signing up with this stuff there's you know cricket in Australia is gradually backing away from it but uh, but that ground's only being made up elsewhere so wherever there's easy money to be made uh, the the game will take it apparently
1: yeah and I should go full circle and note that that's a big Difference with Fairbreak, they have not taken any money from gambling companies. I mean, their uniforms are made from recycled plastic. I mean, they're trying to not only do the right thing by bridging the gap for women who play the game around the world, but also trying to do it in both an ethical and sustainable way. So, yeah, credit to the administrators here who've made that decision because yeah, the lowest hanging fruit is always going to be gambling money. Um, you know, I can't tell you how often we've had the chance to, to partner with um, partner with bookies, and I'm not trying to say we're we're particularly virtuous for saying no, but it's emblematic of the fact that that is the easy money to get hold of. And, and it's something that, that many cricket boards have failed to, failed to say no to, and, and they should.
2: Yep. And if, uh, if it's not the obvious stuff, then it's NFTs and crypto and, and all the other diversified forms of gambling, you know, gambling with, a, with a, a different veneer on top of it, I suppose. But that brings us to the end, I reckon. That uh, has been the final word. For the week, uh, we'll be back on the weekend with Story Time, and uh, back next week with the weekly show. That's what happens with the weekly show. They come out once a week uh, to get all of the news from Adam from Fairbreak, what's been going on there and everything else that's been going on around the cricket world. Uh, Thanks to Dave Collins, who edits the show. It's on the Bad Producer Podcast Network. Uh, You can look them up as well. And thanks to everybody for listening in. We shall see you next time.
1: Ta-ra.